Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Director of Education, Eve Roberts. And this is MP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse, AMP's official podcast bringing unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to MPs and our patients. Irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS, is associated with significant disease burden and decreased quality of life. The Life with IBS survey that was conducted in 2015 revealed that respondents who were employed or in school reported IBS symptoms affected their productivity an average of eight days out of the month, and that they missed approximately one and a half days of work or school per month because of IBS. Today, we have two expert guests here to talk about irritable bowel syndrome. I'm excited to bring you nurse practitioners, Nastasha Williams and Kimberly Kearns. Welcome. Thank you, Eve. Um, So welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us today on this podcast about updated guidelines for irritable bowel syndrome, AKA all things IBS. I just want to thank ANP for the invitation to be part of this podcast. Um, what makes this um, super special today is being able to do this with my mentor and friend, Kim Kearns. So before we get started, let me introduce myself. My name is Nastasha Williams. I am a family nurse practitioner specializing in gastroenterology my entire APP career, so the past eight years. I work in a large academic institution, Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. I work in the outpatient uh, general gastroenterology department. So Kim, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Nastasha. My name is Kimberly Kearns. I am a nurse practitioner. Uh, My specialty is gastroenterology. I've been a nurse practitioner for about 15 years and have provided care for patients in both the inpatient and outpatient division of gastroenterology for that entire time. I currently work for Dooley Health and Care, which is a multi-specialty practice, which is located in the southwest suburbs of Illinois. So Nastasha, I also agree so much. It'll be such a great opportunity to do this podcast with you today. Great, so let's dive into it. So IBS is very common. It affects about 5% of the US population, or about one in 20 people, with a worldwide prevalence of about 11%, and it is female predominant. And typically, you know, IBS is one of the most common diagnoses in clinical gastroenterology. About 30% of our referrals are for IBS, and it's the seventh most common diagnosis by primary care providers. Hence why this podcast is so important. Um, But unfortunately, 50% of patients that have IBS still remain undiagnosed. So I know, I think Kim, you'll kind of echo the same sentiment that, you know, we believe that this is so important for nurse practitioners to understand the pathophysiology of IBS and feel confident in making this diagnosis. Um, But, you know, before we even get into the topic today, we should really talk about what is IBS. So IBS is classified as a disorder of gut-brain interactions formerly known as functional gastrointestinal disorders. And it's a chronic GI condition that may be characterized by abdominal pain, bloating, distension, flatulence, and bowel disturbances. As you can see, there's a broad spectrum of symptoms. And the pathophysiology is complex. 
It involves interactions among several factors, such as alterations in gut microbiome, altered mucosal and immune function, visceral hypersensitivity, which is this heightened sensitivity of the intestines to normal sensations triggered by bloating or distension, motility disturbances, and psychological triggers like anxiety and depression. So as you can see, the pathophysiology is pretty complex. So Kim, can you take us down the path of you know, making the diagnosis of IBS and some of the challenges you see in practice? Yeah, thanks Nastasha. So the diagnosis of IBS can definitely be challenging. So patients may have nonspecific symptoms. There are also a tendency of symptoms to come and go, which is the natural course of irritable bowel syndrome. And this may lead patients to under-reporting their condition, right? Nastasha, as we know, almost 50% of patients actually don't report their condition uh, to us. So also discussions about bowel activity, straining, urgency, bloating, it can sometimes be uncomfortable for patients, right? And there's a reluctance to really discuss this at a visit. We also know as primary care nurse practitioners, we don't have a ton of time to go through this every single time, but it's important as a nurse practitioner to start this conversation because that's how we're gonna get to this diagnosis that we're gonna talk about today. So, and as Nastasha mentioned, it is a common condition. It's very common in primary care. So an underreported, and we're hoping that by the end of this podcast, you are gonna feel comfortable to have the tools to make this diagnosis. So let's shift a little bit and let's talk about making the diagnosis of IBS. So for nurse practitioners, this diagnosis may be challenging as well, right? There's a lack of objective biomarkers to actually help with a reliability of a diagnosis. So more recently, there's been a shift to a positive diagnostic strategy and moving away from what we used to use, which was a diagnosis of exclusion. So many of you are thinking, what is a positive diagnostic strategy? Well, it means specifically developing a positive diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome based on medical history, physical exam, evaluation of GI symptoms with limited diagnostic testing. So Rome 4 criteria for irritable bowel syndrome helps guide this positive diagnostic strategy. So Rome criteria for IBS includes abdominal pain, that's usually one or more days out of the week in the last three months, associated with two or more of the following. It has to be related to defecation, associated with a change in stool frequency, and associated with a change in the stool form or appearance. And this criteria has to be fulfilled for the last three months with the onset of symptoms six months before diagnosis. So more chronicity we see here, right? So we reviewed Rome criteria for IBS, but now let's address how we further dive into the diagnostics. So let's start by talking about the four separate subtypes of irritable bowel syndrome. The first one is constipation predominant. Second, we have diarrhea predominant. Then we have a mixed subtype, which as you can imagine, right, mix both diarrhea and constipation. And lastly, undefined. Now a clinical pearl I'd like to throw in here is that patients with irritable bowel syndrome can sometimes migrate between these subtypes. So it's important that we reassess subtype over time, okay? So kind of just because they get you know, um, diagnosed with IBS-C doesn't mean that they can't switch to having IBS-D eventually throughout their life. So with the use of the Bristol stool form scale, a provider can then classify patients into a subtype. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the Bristol stool form scale, it's a visual tool that lists stool types on a scale of one to seven. I would tell you, I love this tool. I keep it in my pocket. Um, I use it all the time. So please make sure that you acquire a copy. 
It will save you so much time, which we'll talk about in a second. So when we talk about the Bristol stool form scale, again, it's a tool that lists stool types on a scale of one to seven. Type one, we've got like separate hard stools, almost like nuts. A type two, it's kind of tubular or sausage shaped, but also very lumpy. A type three is a tubular shaped stool, but still with cracks on the surface. And now these ones, types one, two, and three, these are more of the constipation type, right? So we get to type four, and this is a tubular shape, but it's smooth and soft. We call this our ideal stool, right? So type five, now we start moving into our looser stools, right? Soft blobs with like edges, but still semi-formed, right? Type six are fluffy pieces with ragged edges. They're mushy type stools. And last seven, which is watery stools, no solid pieces, and it's entirely liquid. So now a little tip here, right? When interviewing a patient, I usually take my visual reference that I have, right, my Bristol stool form card that I keep in my pocket, and I take it out and I show it to the patient, and I say, can you please point to the stool type that you most identify with, right? A, it's gonna save time, but B, it also helps quantify where we're at in their diagnostic plan, right? And when we go back and see these patients, eventually you've now have, you now have a tool that you can refer back to with your patient. So now, we use our bristle stool form scale and then we can classify our patient into a specific subtype. And for clarification, the threshold that a patient needs to describe is at least 25% or more of their bowel movements falling into a specific stool type per the bristle stool form scale. So for example, constipation predominance, they'd have a predominance of a type number one and type two stools, right? And type D, uh, diarrhea type, of course, we've got a predominant of number six and number seven. For the mixed subtype, as you can imagine, the stool description may vary between a one all the way through a seven. But as a clinical pearl, I'll tell you, I caution you with this, this diagnosis of IBS mixed. Most of the time I've determined that these patients actually have constipation and the intermittent diarrhea that they're experiencing is actually overflow diarrhea. So in this situation, I would tell you, it's super important to perform a rectal exam just to exclude a fecal impaction. And lastly, we talked about four subtypes, right? We have undefined. So this is a category that's utilized for those that don't fall into the other three categories, as mentioned. Um, in my clinical opinion, uh, not used very frequently. So in order to move through our positive diagnostic strategy, we need to evaluate for any alarm features or any red flags, right? So this would include rectal bleeding, that's not due to a hemorrhoid or fissure, unexplained iron deficiency anemia, severe or progressively worsening symptoms, unexplained weight loss, nocturnal diarrhea, which means you wake up in the middle of the night in order to have a bowel movement or you cannot sleep, you have to wake up because you have the sensation to have a bowel movement, fever, and family history of organic GI diseases. This includes colon cancer, celiac disease, or inflammatory bowel disease. Now, the other thing I'd like to point out is that there's an acute onset of symptoms or new onset of symptoms after age 50. So as we talked about before, remember the Rome criteria? This is a condition that's been ongoing for quite some time, right? So it's not an acute onset of symptoms. And again, if there's an, a new onset of symptoms over age 50, this should be a little bit of a red flag to you. Now let's talk about where colonoscopy fits into this, right? Because everybody wants to scope everybody quickly. Send them to GI, get them scoped. Well, colonoscopy should only be performed on patients that have alarm features and for patients that should have age-appropriate colorectal cancer screenings. Now, over the last two years, that age requirement for colorectal cancer screening has now changed and includes any adult over the age of 45. But again, we, we reserve colonoscopy specifically for those that have alarm features and that are age-appropriate for colorectal cancer screening. 
So as we move through and we talk about this positive diagnostic strategy, let's talk about that limited diagnostic testing. Because I know everybody wants to test everybody, right? They come in with abdominal pain. We want to do, do a lot of CAT scan, labs. Well, we want to talk about how we, we, we make this a positive diagnostic strategy without all the tests, right? So we're going to review the limited diagnostic tests for patients without alarm features. So first of all, the reason we go through subtype, we talked about Bristol stool form scales because we now have to break down our IBS patient into subtype. So first and foremost, we've got all of our IBS patients. We think that it's IBS. We're going to start with the CBC. We're gonna start with a complete metabolic profile and a thyroid profile. Kind of gives us a, a, an overall idea or picture of health, right? We can rule out anemia. We can also make sure that they don't have hypothyroidism. So now let's break it down into subtype. For IBS diarrhea predominance, we wanna check what's called a fecal calprotectin. This is a stool test that checks for inflammation. Now we're ruling out inflammatory bowel disease, right? We wanna check a CRP. So again, looking for inflammation. Next, we also want to check for celiac disease. So do a celiac screening test. And I'll tell you, you don't need to do a full celiac profile. You can do a, a, a TTG and IgA. That's all you need to do. And, and that, that doesn't include that entire celiac profile. And of course, becomes, you know, a cost-effective way of checking. Now, if there is a high suspicion for bile acid diarrhea, you can check for um, bile acid diarrhea where this test is available and only if it's suspected. Now, what I wanna point out for our IBS diarrhea type patients is there's actually no recommendations on performing routine stool studies. So kind of pull that out of your, you know, of your, your diagnostic plan. There is no need to do all kinds of stool studies on these tests. Now, as we talk about our IBS-C patients, so again, we're talking about subtype, we're talking about those limited diagnostic testings. Again, we wanna rule out celiac disease. And if they have severe or refractory constipation, now this is when a patient might need a GI evaluation for, you know, physiologic testing. So and that's something that we would do as a specialty in, in GI, you know, checking anal rectal manometry or something along those lines. Now we moved into that mixed family. And again, you're going to see some repetitiveness here, right? So we should be getting used to this algorithm. So IBS mixed. Well, we talked about diarrhea and constipation already. So just combine those two together, right? So again, fecal calprotectin, CRP, celiac screening. And here's where, you know, I use this in, in, for a patient who I feel has um, constipation predominance and maybe not, and they, they, they explain that they're having diarrhea in intermittently. I'll do an abdominal x-ray to just look for stool accumulation, but that will be my only diagnostic test. Now, we can work through that limited diagnostic testing for our patients without alarm features. And I know a lot of us get very nervous thinking, oh goodness, Kim, is that really all I need to do? Well, final point here is that studies suggest that over 90% accurate positive diagnosis of IBS when following this strategy. So let's use this strategy and get to our patients faster. So this way we can get them treatment. That's what we want to do as advanced practice providers, right? We want to assess our patients, make an accurate diagnosis, and then, of course, work on a, a treatment plan. Nastasha, I know we just reviewed all the steps in a positive diagnostic strategy. Do you have any tips for interviewing an IBS patient? Yeah, you did a great job, Kim. And I think, you know, in terms of tips for interviewing a patient, um, take it back to the basics, right? So old cards, right? That onset, location, duration, because again, these patients are going to have those chronic kind of, you know, symptoms that will kind of wax and wane. Um, and I think just in terms of interviewing, I think it's important to, um, you know, be a good listener. I remember a mentor telling me, if you just listen to your patient, they will tell you everything you need to know to make a diagnosis. 
Um, and again, reassurance that this is a real diagnosis and these are real symptoms that they're feeling. Um, and lastly, you know, it's establishing that relationship, that trust, because again, we talk about how these symptoms are very private. Some people don't talk about them with anybody. And then for the first time, you know, they're meeting you, you've got like 15 minutes to kind of establish that relationship, get to the trust factor so that you can further, um, you know, go down the path of treatment. Um, what about you, Kim? What are you, what are your thoughts on interviewing patients? I, I can't agree with you more. You know, I think the first part is, you know, making sure you ask the right questions and then you're right and listening. Um, there, there's so much that a patient can tell you, but also guiding that direction. And, and from an interviewing perspective too, the Bristol Stool Form Scale by far is my most important tool and is a time saver. I can't tell you, um, I can't tell you enough how much it is a time saver. So with that being said, Nastasha, why don't you give us a little bit of information about the burden of IBS? No, absolutely. Um, and it's funny about the Bristol stool scale. I was going to say I have it in my phone. Um, and so I constantly bring it up um, and show patients it saves so much time. And in terms of patients that, um, you know, to come in and tell you I'm having severe diarrhea, I'm going three, four, five times a day. And you bring out that Bristol school, stool scale and they have a Bristol one. And it really is truly constipation that they're having. So as you can see, it's so important to differentiate because treating constipation versus treating diarrhea is completely separate. Um, so I just wanted to kind of bring up that point because again, just it should be in your pocket, be in your phone, be pasted on the wall, wherever you can have it. It's my trusty tool. So in terms of the burden of IBS, IBS is not a life-threatening condition, but it can have serious implications in terms of quality of life. And that's part of that positive diagnostic strategy. Just as you stated in terms of the studies, just following that positive diagnostic strategy, you can eliminate the time it'll take with these unnecessary tests and really get to the key factor, which is improving quality of life. And when we talk about quality of life, there are many aspects that IBS affects. So in terms, in terms of like social um, aspects, you know, there's that concern about access to restrooms um, and that unpredictability of the symptoms. You know, patients are skipping social events, they're isolating themselves, they're scared to go out to eat, it's straining their relationships because they're, you know, they're not able to um, interact in social settings and also with like personal relationships and intimacy. And then you have the psychological aspect of it. Is it the anxiety and the depression that is, you know, triggering the symptoms or is it the symptoms that are causing the anxiety and depression? So kind of like this, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg type of thing. And then there's the emotional aspect, the embarrassment, the shame. What happens if I have an accident or, you know, or my diet is so restrictive or I'm not eating anything. What are people going to say? So there's that emotional um, component to it. And then financial, financial to the patient and to the healthcare system. Um, in terms of missed work, IBS is the second highest cause of work absentee next to the common cold. And in terms of medical costs to the patient and the healthcare system, it's estimated to be about one to $10 billion per year in direct medical cost. And this is not even including over-the-counter therapies and prescription medications. And then in terms of pain and quality of life, it's that physical debilitation that this essentially dis disorder can have on patients. And then also that kind of overly restrictive, um, you know, perseverating on their diet and intake needs. And there was a great study that, you know, kind of compared health-related quality of life scores to other chronic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, and stage renal disease. 
And what the study showed is that actually patients with IBS scored lower or had lower quality of life in regards to these other patients that had these chronic conditions. So it just kind of goes to show you, um, you know, truly the impact that it has on the quality of life. There's even measurement tools. There's the IBS QOL that are, it's used for research purposes, but also to kind of gauge, you know, how severe are the symptoms? How, how are they affecting a patient's quality of life? And most of the time, I mean, just as clinicians, as you're talking to a patient, you can tell how severe it is. For example, like last week, I had a young female who um, has IBSD and she doesn't have a car and she has to take the train to work. And the train ride is about an hour. Um, and so she is terrified of waking up every morning and going into work. She doesn't eat and she's even had an accident on the train because of that urgency, her symptoms kicked in. So now she's got this scar, this like, you know, this trauma that's happened to her. She's working from home, but her job requires her to go into work. So now she's scared about losing her job. So as you can see how this condition can just really take a toll on so many aspects, emotionally, psychologically. So Kim, can you tell us about any experiences that you have with patients and kind of the effects on quality of life? Yeah, sure, Nastasha. Wow, that your patient that you're talking about, that really resonates. It's sad to hear how um, the, the negative effects of this, this very treatable condition, right? So I think that that's also where we have to step in as, as nurse practitioners, because we know that, that we, can, we can manage this, right? We know that. Um, so, you know, one of my, um, you know, most favorite stories, or I should say is one of my favorite success stories, you know, is a patient who had IBS-C. It was a, a woman who was in her, uh, she was in her late 50s, you know, telling me how, you know, she would have a bowel movement sometimes less than one time per week, you know, at times, you know, couldn't wear her clothes, felt like she was, you know, distended or pregnant, even would send me pictures sometimes, you know, through the portal about showing me how distended she was, <laughs> you know? Oh I'm sure you've gotten those too, Nastasha, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just for her too, she she had young children or children who were teenagers, you know, and she would she would eliminate going to sporting events or watching her kids because she was so uncomfortable, right? So and it's just you 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 really don't realize how much it affects patients' quality of life. Well, after her and I sat down, we've had we had a few meetings, so on and so forth, and we'll talk more about management. But after we got her on a great management plan, how much it really shifted her life, and how one day she came back and actually thanked me and said, "Gosh, you've given me my life back." Right? And I think oh. it's those moments that really make us like shine uh, as advanced practice providers when we're able to get to that diagnosis and and really help out um, in improving patients' quality of life, especially with. A very treatable condition. Hmm? No, absolutely. It's it's very rewarding to have those success stories because we do see a lot of patients who, you know, were miserable. They're looking, they're seeking just help from us, and and so when we have those success stories, it's really just truly makes us you know know that we're doing a great job, and it's always good to hear the, the good things. So so thanks for sharing that with us, um, Kim. Now we've talked about you know like you know in terms of defining IBS, the prevalence, the burden, the challenges of making a diagnosis. But Kim, can you talk to us about how do we manage IBS patients? Yeah, great. So, and I think we've already recognized that irritable bowel syndrome is a multifactorial disorder, right? As Nastasha talked earlier about the pathophysiology. So utilizing a multidisciplinary approach may actually provide effective individualized management of IBS. So let's shift a little bit and now discuss the principles of managing irritable bowel syndrome. And the treatment modalities for irritable bowel syndrome are vast, right? They include both pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatment options, which we're going to have a more in-depth discussion about in a, in a few minutes, right? But as a nurse practitioner, one of the important things to remember is the management of irritable bowel syndrome is really focused on targeting and treatment our patient's most bothersome symptom. 
So when we talked about that interview process, here's part of this questioning, right? Make sure to ask your patient this specific question. What is your most bothersome symptom, right? Also, please ask what they've tried and failed in the past. You know, I joke all the time, what's the technical definition of insanity, right? Trying the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different outcome, right? We can use that classically in our entire in our practice all the time, right? So when we're talking to our irritable bowel syndrome patients, we have to ask them, what prescription therapies have you tried? What over-the-counter therapies have you tried? How long did you try them for? And also, be specific. If they were given a prescription, did they actually take it? How long did they take it for? Did they take a full course or did they only take a few weeks? And even if so, if they took it five or six years ago, what were the effects of this therapy? And what were their perceived effects, right? Also, we have to make sure we ask about supplements, probiotics. Have they tried any lifestyle modifications? And what did they try? And even as we talked about the non-pharmacological treatment options, have they tried you know, meditation techniques? breathing, right? Uh, diaphragmatic breathing. Have they tried, you know, meditation or anything along those lines? And what were the outcomes of that? If they tried diet, diet modification, what, what did they try? And again, clarify, how long were you on the diet? Two days doesn't count, my friend. You know, you got to be on it for a longer duration of time. And again, ask them, did you note any change in your symptoms at all? So, and I think that this helps develop this individualized treatment plan, right? So and as I mentioned before, irritable bowel syndrome is a multifactorial disorder, and the use of integrated care models has actually been proven to be effective in the management of our IBS patients. Now, I know you're thinking, I'm primary care, most of the people listening, primary care. You can do this, though, so let's talk a little bit through this, right? So Dr. Lin Chang actually describes what's called a RESET method, so R-E-S-E-T, RESET which in primary care, I think we can actually incorporate this into our practice. So let's talk about what RESET is. So R is the relationship between provider and patient. So this provider-patient relationship has to be the foundation, right? Our E stands for education and reassurance. So provide a confident and positive diagnosis of IBS. Make sure you validate their condition and provide them reassurance that IBS is treatable. Now the S stands for symptom assessment. It's imperative to identify the patient's most bothersome IBS symptom and address it, right? That's what we talked about, asking that question. The next, of course, is E, exacerbating and alleviating factors. So make sure that when you're talking to your patient, find out what factors are associated with the development of their IBS. So we need to know what triggers them. Is it anxiety? Is it food? What is it that's actually triggering it? So we can help them identify what these are, right? The more patients have control of their disease, the better our outcomes are gonna be. And last but not least, T, targeted treatment, as we talked about before. We know that there are multiple resources available to guide IBS management. The American College of Gastroenterology has IBS guidelines that were recently updated in 2020, and the American Gastrointestinal Association also has IBS guidelines. Both are available and online and are free. Um, and again, I consider these guidelines because that's what they are, they're guidelines. They're an outline for what we can utilize in order to treat our IBS patients. And if you look those up, you'll see there's a little bit of difference between the two, but I think as a, as a nurse practitioner, um, even in, in primary care or gastroenterology, these are great resources to kind of help develop how we're going to treat our patients with IBS. Now, to conclude here, treating irritable bowel syndrome patients can definitely be difficult. 
is not all patients respond to treatment. And patients with very similar symptoms sometimes respond very differently to the same treatments that we've used before, right? So Nastasha, can you now bring us into discussing some of the pharmacological management of IBS? Yes, Kim, thank you, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, so we'll start talking about IBSC and pharmacological treatment, but you bring up some great points. Asking what have they taken in the past and how long did they take it for and did it work? Are Those are key questions to ask before you dive into it. Um, so when we talk about IBSC management, I think we also have to start the conversation or I just want you to know um, that I, there is a lot of overlap between IBSC and CIC, which is chronic idiopathic constipation. So you'll see for some of these medications, there are dual dosages depending on the indication of treatment. So we'll kind of start off with secretagogues. So secretagogues are your guanylate cyclase C agonist or your GCC agonist. And that's your linaclotide, Linzess, and placanotide, which is Trulance. And they work by um, increasing intracellular cycline guanosine monophosphate, which creates this ion gradient that promotes fluid secretion and inhibits colon pain stimuli, which then improves constipation, reduces pain, bloating, and cramping. Some of the biggest side effects are diarrhea. And I'll tell you, for my IBSC patients, um, they would welcome diarrhea any day as opposed to the constipation. So when I tell them about that side effect, they don't even hesitate. When it comes to placanotide, um, there is one, one dosing once a day for both CIC and IBS. And then for linaclotide, there is dual dosing, and the dosing for IBSC is 290 micrograms a day. And we typically tell them to take it about half hour or 60 minutes prior to taking any food. Those will be your secretagogues. Then we have um, chloride channel activators. So that's your lubiprostone or amatiza. And in chloride channel activators, they work by creating an ion gradient that promotes water and sodium secretion into the intestinal lumen without altering sodium and potassium concentrations in the serum. And for lubiprostone, there are three indications actually for it, opioid-induced constipation, chronic idiopathic constipation, IBS. And again, so there's that dual dosing, but for IBS-C, the dosing is eight micrograms um, twice a day. And the biggest side effect is usually nausea. So it's best given with food. And um, sometimes if my patients have predominantly, you know, in terms of symptoms, they have a little nausea underlying, may not be my first um, go-to medication. Then we have our 5-HT4 agonists. So that's your tegaceride or Zalnorm and your procanopride or Metegrity. Um, now for the for, for procalopride, um, it is indicated for CIC, but there is off-label use um, for IBSC. And your 5-HT4 agonists, they basically accelerate the GI motility, which improves constipation. Now, tegaceride is, is an older drug. It was actually taken off the market for some of the cardiovascular risk factors, but it has been recently brought back by the FDA, but under specific criteria. So um, in terms of um, the, the FDA um, recommends the use of that drug in young women less than age 65, with one or less cardiovascular risk factors who have had an inadequate response to secretagogues. So again, for those of our nurse practitioners in primary care, this is probably not a medication that you will prescribe, but it's good to just know. Um, and then lastly, we have our tenapinor, which is your sodium hydrogen exchanger, which creates an ion gradient that promotes water and sodium secretion into the intestinal lumen. This is FDA approved, but it's not available yet. So um, just kind of keep a lookout. This is something you'll probably see coming down the pipeline. Um, so that's kind of our, that wraps up our pharmacological management of IBSC. 
Um, Kim, can you start? Um, can you talk us through the pharmacological management of IBSD? Yes, absolutely. So. Um, I think, you know, as we, we talk about those subsets, right, and then I think here now, this is how we then work on our management stuff. So thanks for giving us that great overview on the IBSC patient. So for our IBS diarrhea predominance, let's start with the tried and true, loperamide, right? We all know what that is. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, loperamide has been recommended for symptomatic treatment of diarrhea. However, the antidiarrheals actually don't significantly re relieve abdominal pain and is well often overutilized to treat irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea predominance. So again, um, not necessarily my first line thought when I'm treating an IBSD patient because it's going to help with the diarrhea. But remember, our patients with irritable bowel syndrome, a lot of times their predominant symptom is pain. So think about that as you're choosing your drug. And again, I think loperamide is, is well overutilized um, and more to treat the diarrhea component versus the abdominal component. Now, rifaximin or zyfaxin is an FDA-approved non-systemically absorbed antibiotic. Rifaximin works directly in the gut to inhibit bacterial overgrowth. And I know Nastasha mentioned before the pathophysiology of irritable bowel syndrome, and some of this is thought to be related to a shift in the microbiome. So by using an antibiotic that only works in the gut, the theory is, is that will change the flora of the GI tract and help alleviate some of the symptoms that correlate with irritable bowel syndrome, specifically diarrhea, abdominal pain, and bloating. So if a patient has an adequate clinical response after their first two-week course of rifaximin, it can actually be prescribed up to three more times so at the total of 14 days, right, um, they can have three more courses in a total of one year. But again, this is a little bit subjective because the patient has to have an adequate clinical response before you would decide on retreating them again with a 14-day course. So short course of therapy, so not a long-term therapeutic option for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea predominance, right? And again, it's not systemically absorbed. Some of the most common side effects sometimes, unfortunately, can be a little bit of diarrhea, but that's pretty, uh, that, that, that profile is, is actually quite low. The next drug that we're going to talk about is uh, eluxadiline, which is Viberzi, which is a mixed opiate antagonist and agonist, um, which seems to have a greater efficacy on improving diarrhea over abdominal pain. And I'll tell you, there's two doses. I usually start with a lower dose to avoid constipation, but there are a lot of uh, contraindications in regards to using this, this therapy. So first of all, it cannot be used in patients without a gallbladder, can't be used in a patient with a history of, of alcohol abuse, meaning more than three drinks per day, if they have pancreatitis, sphincter of OD dysfunction, or severe liver disease. I will tell you, um, you know, from a primary care perspective, this is not a therapy that um, I think would be a first line for me at all. This is usually a therapy that I utilize after I've utilized many other therapies to try and help treat um, IBSD. And I would probably tell you I would reserve this therapy um, for someone who, um, a healthcare provider that specializes in gastroenterology. Our next uh, therapy that I'd like to talk about is Unlozotran, um, which is a 5-HT3 antagonist, um, which again, I know Nastasha mentioned earlier, so 5-HT3 is serotonin. We know serotonin modulates gastrointestinal motility and visceral sensation. So Unlozotran uh, is currently FDA approved, but also is restricted for the treatment of severe IBSD in women whose disease is unresponsible to traditional treatment. So restriction was placed on this therapy due to its rare but serious side effect of ischemic colitis. And this again is a therapy that I would actually suggest is initiated by a provider that specializes in gastroenterology. 
So Nastasha, we talked about IBS-C, we talked about IBS-D. Can you talk a little bit about the management of our global IBS symptoms? Yeah, thanks, Kim. I think in terms of the shift now is really treating the global symptom profile, but keeping that predominant symptom in the back of your mind. So if pain is the predominant symptom, we typically like to use low dose tricyclic antidepressants or neuromodulators. And I think it's very important when you approach the subject with patients that the language um, be correct. We're not using it for the antidepressive properties. Again, we're using them as neuromodulators. So we're targeting the dysregulated pain and motility related to this gut brain dysregulation. And so when we talk about TCAs, we'll use amitriptyline or Elevil, some of the side or imipramine or desmepirine. Again, the biggest side effect are the anticholinergic side effects. So the constipation, the dry mouth. So this is actually really great in patients with IBSD because you have that pain component that you can treat and also kind of help with the diarrhea. We still use it for patients with IBSC. Again, we're using, we're using low dose tricyclic antidepressants. And sometimes in my patients with IBSC, I'll actually tend to use the secondary amine, so your nortriptyline, your mepramine, because they have less anticholinergic side effects. And again, we usually start low in terms of dosing. It can cause sleepiness, so we like to give them at night. Um, but I think the biggest take-home point for patients to know is that it takes six to eight weeks to see significant pain reduction. So this is not going to be an overnight fix. And I think if patients are aware of how long they can wait to expect to see improvement, it just helps them set up expectations. Um, I mean, I have a patient who, you know, I remember she was in my office and she was crying. It was, you know, her, the pain was a predominant symptom, it was affecting her quality of life, but she was so scared to take the TCA. And after we talked through the mechanism of action and how it worked and what it, you know, did, you know, fast forward six months later, she's in my office and she's just thanking me because she, she's now that she's having control of her pain, she doesn't know why she didn't start on this earlier. So again, another success story um, in terms of, again, having that conversation with patients and, um, you know, explaining the modality of how this medication works. Um, another medication you'll see is also your SNRI, so your serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So that's your duloxetine or Paxil or, or your venafilexin or Fexor. And this inhibits norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine reuptake. And we use these when side effects from TCAs kind of preclude treatment. Um, and then you also see SSRIs or selective um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So they inhibit the serotonin reuptake and they are useful when anxiety and depression are the driving factors. So that's your paroxetine, your ser uh, sertraline. Um, again, they don't have a lot of effect on pain, but again, if you think the anxiety and depression are the driving factors to their symptoms, this is great. Um, and sometimes we'll have to use a multidisciplinary approach and work with psychiatrists um, to kind of tackle both. So we may have them on an SSRI and then a low dose TCA to um, you know, kind of tackle the pain component. So in terms of, you know, again, with that whole thinking of the global symptom profile, um, let's kind of shift gears and talk about some non-pharmacological management, and that's, and one of them is diet. So diet is huge. Um, there's several studies showing how effective um, it can be in terms of treating this, you know, global symptom profile. And one diet is the low FODMAP diet. So FODMAPs, you probably heard about them, and I'm sure Kim ton of your patients come into the office with these little handouts of they've been given this low FODMAP diet. They don't really know what to do with it, but they're kind of restricting everything. Um, and I think this is a great teaching point in terms of what is a FODMAP. So FODMAPs are for, they're basically small 
fermentable carbohydrates. So they're your oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polios. And they're poorly absorbed, um, which can lead to increased um, water in the GI tract and increased fermentation in the colon. Thus, they'll produce these short chain fatty acids and gases, which can lead to luminal distension and the triggering of meal-related symptoms in patients with IBS. Now, I think it's important to also tell your patients that this is not meant to be long-term. This is meant to be short-term to identify these triggers. So let's talk about the three-step approach to the low FODMAP diet. So the first stage is this elimination phase, and that's where you remove all high FODMAPs from the diet and substitute them with low FODMAPs. And this can take about two to four weeks until you kind of, um, till symptoms resolve. And then the second stage is gradually reintroduction of foods into the diet while assessing symptoms. So you'll reintroduce like one food every four days and kind of monitor symptoms because the goal is to provide a variety of foods as soon as possible. And then the third stage is personalization of the diet. Um, so that in terms of, so you can figure out what are those foods that trigger symptoms. Um, and I think it's important to talk about, you know, there was a, a good study um, looking at the low FODMAP diet versus the modified NICE diet. Now the modified NICE diet is kind of a less restrictive, you know, tool where it's like, you know, have regular meals, take out coffee, take out tea, reduce alcohol, X, Y, and Z. Well, the study showed that actually head to head, low FODMAP, um, about 52% of patients reported adequate relief of their IBS symptoms as opposed to those on the modified NICE diet, about 41%. So again, about 50% of patients will respond to a low FODMAP diet. So therefore, you know, it's, it's a great, um, you know, non-pharmacological lifestyle intervention to do, to have patients go through. But I think it's also important to note that if they're not having any improvement of symptoms in eight weeks, discontinue the low FODMAP diet. Because in this case, the FODMAPs are likely not the cause of symptoms. And I think also too, in terms of from their bowel pattern perspective, low FODMAPs can cause constipation. So that may happen when they start to eliminate these high FODMAPs. Um, but when they start to reintroduce them, you know, it should help alleviate some of those symptoms. So that's, um, you know, so that kind of wraps up the low FODMAP portion. Um, so let's talk about dietary fiber. Because in terms of dietary fiber, I mean, basically it has overall general health benefits. Everybody should have about 25 to 35 grams a day of fiber. But fiber, there's differences between soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. When we talk about dietary fiber, we frequently recommend it to improve symptoms in patients with IBSC when that's the predominant complaint. Now, soluble fiber is found in your psyllium husk, your oat bran, your barley, your beans, and this fiber will exert a laxative effect and tend to increase stool water content and resist colonic fermentation. Where insoluble fiber, which you'll find in your wheat bran, your whole grains, and some of your vegetables, this fiber can ferment in the colon and it'll lose that water holding capacity and produce gas that could actually aggravate symptoms of bloating and flatulence. So it's very important to, you know, when we're recommending diet, a fiber, dietary fiber, is to steer them towards the soluble fiber. And then next we'll talk about peppermint oil. Um, so the, the medical grade food where peppermint oil is a natural herbal remedy for patients with IBS, particularly those with abdominal pain. We think because in terms of studies, the benefits of peppermint oil for patients with IBS um, have been most often attributed to the L-methanols blockade of calcium channels um, and smooth muscle relaxation. And there is also, you know, potential explanations that it could also help with that visceral sensation, have some direct antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory effects, and also help with modulation of psychosocial distress. 
Now in terms of peppermint oil, just kind of straight up, it can essentially um, relax that lower esophageal sphincter and cause um, heartburn. But we see with the enteric-coated formulations of peppermint oil, it may help alleviate some of those side effects. Um, so some of the you know peppermint oils you'll see over the counter, one of them being Ivy Guard again, enteric-coated formula. And so next we'll switch to um, gut-directed psychotherapies. So we have cognitive behavioral therapy and gut-directed hypnotherapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy is designed to build healthy coping strategies um, and thought patterns, whereas hypnotherapy helps the brain modulate pain signals from root causes of IBS for that oversensitive nerve in, nerves in the gut. And these are done by trained psychotherapists in you know, gastroenterology. Some of the potential drawbacks, um, for example, like they may not be routinely um, a part of a practice's care. Like at my institution, we have a whole cognitive behavioral therapy department. But Kim, I'm not sure, um, do you have anything at your institution? No, we don't actually. And Nastasha, I think we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But that's, of course, why, you know, having this uh, underlying pathway to refer to tertiary care centers or advanced practice providers like yourself, because you're right, in a community-based setting, we don't have um, uh, that type of resource. And so that's good to, you know, it's good to know, and we'll talk about that in a second in terms of the referral pathway. But Prime example, they're not readily available. Again, it's an investment of time. Patients have to you know, make appointments, carve out time. There's also a lack of trained therapists. Um, so you know, also when we talk about patients' time, um, what's the thing we always joke about, Kim? There's an app for that. So there are several apps or other resources that I think are very helpful to patients that are highly motivated and that are tech savvy. Like for example, there is the Monash FODMAP app, which was developed by the Monash University in Australia, which does a lot of you know, research in terms of the low FODMAP diet. You're able to download it. There is a fee associated with it. I think it's about $8. Um, but what's nice is there's an easy tutorial. It takes you through the three stages of the low FODMAP diet. Um, so that's a great resource for patients that just kind of, again, self-motivated um, and want to kind of take things into their own hands. But again, and something I forgot to mention also with the low FODMAP diet is that also it's really, you should really utilize your GI dietitians and that's where that should really be a, a key factor is utilizing them for the diet interventions. And also if you have, like we again also have ga specific gastroenterology dietitians who are very familiar with all of these, um, you know, diets and resources. So if you have them, use them. <laughs> and then also we have, there's a, there's a newer app called Mahana. And it's the first FDA cleared prescription digital therapy to deliver cognitive behavioral therapy for adults with irritable bowel syndrome. Now, um, they it's um, basically has 10 sessions um, in 10 minute increments um, to be done over 12 weeks. Um, so it's a, again a great um, tool for those that do not have um, you know pretty severe kind of chronic these like other psychological overlapping components to it. But those patients that are kind of have mild um, who are again self motivated and willing and very savvy with you know with technology. Um, the only drawback is insurance coverage that I know they're working on in terms of um, coverage by insurances. But that's but again um, it's another great app to use and then. For those of you, like myself, who love a good book, I like to feel it, read it, turn the pages. Um, there's a great book by um, Doug Drossman called Gut Feelings, because Doug Drossman is an IBS expert legend in the IBS world, um, and it's, about, it's a book by him and one of his patients, and it provides the perspective from a patient and provider's perspective. 
Um, so I'm going to kind of bring it back to that referral pathway. So, so Kim, you know, we were talking about in terms of the referral pathway, I work at an academic institution, you work at a community health, a community-based center. And, um, when do you know, when do you think would be the best um, way or how has that referral pathway worked for us? Sure. Well, I think that that's great. And fortunately, you and I have had a pretty long-standing relationship. So, <laughs> um, but I, I think it's important for those that are listening, you know, that are um, advanced practice providers that are, um, you know, specifically in primary care, that you really reach out and know who your nurse practitioner colleagues are in your community, right? Have, you know, have a GI nurse practitioner or PA who specializes, you know, in GI that you know that you can call. And we joke about phoning a friend, right? But even I need to phone a friend every so often. Um, so, you know, for the patients, for in my personal and clinical experiences, it's the patients where really I see the psychosocial component and the, the psychology behind IBS really kind of takes over, right? And these mm -hmm. patients really need more of an in-depth, multidisciplinary approach, including that of like the gut-directed psychotherapies, which, you know, at a university-based practice like yourself, Nastasha, we know that that's where the patient can benefit most. You know, seeing a clinician there, um, like yourself, which I know I've referred my patients to you, um, you know, seeing a clinician and then moving forward with then this multidisciplinary kind of evaluation, including that of the gut psychotherapies um, that I know you guys offer, along with having a dedicated GI dietitian, um, which we don't have either in, um, you know, in community-based mm -hmm. practice. So I know we're talking a lot about this multidisciplinary approach, but I think from a primary care perspective, yes, you can still approach it from a multidisciplinary kind of aspect, right, Nastasha? We've talked about medications, but we also talk about these non-pharmacological approaches too, right? Lifestyle modifications. We talk about even recommending meditation, yoga. We know that yoga and meditation actually help improve IBS symptoms. So there is still a way from a primary care perspective without needing a GI referral or even a typical, you know, referral from myself to GI to go down to an academic center where you can help manage our IBS patient. So Nastasha, do you have any um, tips or tricks on how to how to actually facilitate that pathway with you? No, no, I, and you did a great job of explaining everything. And I think, like you said, in terms of this podcast is meant to give nurse practitioners in primary care um, the tools to feel confident. Um, and when they don't, or they feel when they are, when the patients have are, are kind of complex, or they've kind of failed kind of their first line treatment, and they maybe need to be started on some of these more complex medications, that's where feel free to refer. So get to know your, your local GI provider, and then those, and also network. I think networking is huge. You should know where is, you know, find that contact person, that nurse practitioner um, in the academic setting or in your community setting. So that way you can have that, you know, how many times do we text like, hey, hey, Kim or hey, Nastasha, we need to get this patient in. Can you help me out here? And keeping that dialogue, um, you know, in order so that you can help expedite patient care because we already know that specialty care access is a problem. I mean, it's taking three to six months to get in to see somebody. So the faster that you can get patients in by having that, that, that pathway and that connection, I think is, is very, is key. So thanks for talking about that with us. Um, but now we've had a lot of information we've talked about. Um, and you know, what are your thoughts? I think we have to talk about, you know, what are your thoughts about in terms of treatment? What about, what do probiotics fall into all of this? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> the big question, the hot topic. Yeah, right. Hot topic, hot topic, right? <laughs> so I think we brought it up before, right? We talked about 
guidelines, right? ACG guidelines, AGA guidelines. And patients, most of them come in, you know, when they have irritable bowel syndrome or, or something, they, they always want to talk about probiotics, right? And the use of probiotics as a potential treatment for irritable bowel syndrome has definitely increased over the past decade. There are so many probiotics on the market. I mean, they've got a whole aisle dedicated to them now, don't they? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I mean, and much enthusiasm on, you know, using probiotics is really based on the growing literature supporting the role of the microbiome. And I love the microbiome, Nastasha, I know you can attest to this. I love talking about the microbiome, <laughs> but unfortunately, what we, what we don't have is literature that actually supports a specific type of strain or a specific type of probiotic to use in order to provide benefit for our irritable bowel syndrome patients, right? So there are so many of them, and each of them have so many strains. Again, there's no, there's no specific study that says we're going to use this strain or this specific probiotic, and we know that it's going to create this benefit for irritable bowel syndrome. And I think that's why our guidelines actually don't, they actually recommend not using probiotics to treat irritable bowel syndrome unless involved in a study. Now, I take a step back, right? Because do I use probiotics in practice? Yes, I do. I will recommend probiotics in certain situations. Um, Nastasha, you, what are your thoughts? No, I completely agree with you um, in terms of patients who come in with, you know, bottles and bottles of different probiotics. And you're right. We just need more data. I can't confidently tell them what's been sitting on this shelf. Is, is it placebo effect? Is what's really in there there? And does, you know, is more necessarily better? Um, you know, 10 billion strains, 20 billion strains. Right. Um, we just don't have the, we just don't have the data. Um, I typically will also use probiotics in certain situations for certain indications. Um, but again, if it's, you know, I just can't tell them this is the data that shows that it's beneficial. So if it's working for them, fine, you can continue to take it. I just can't from a provider, you know, standpoint, be able to kind of tell you the benefits that are, that we can tell in terms of, um, from scientific data. So right. yeah, completely agree with you. Yeah. And I think too, what patients don't realize is the number one side effect sometimes of, of, you know, probiotics is GI symptoms, abdominal bloating, change in bowel activity. So unfortunately they may not providing, be providing themselves any kind of benefit and actually worsening their symptoms. So I think there's more to come on probiotics, but from right now, if we look at a, a recommendation standpoint, um, and again, if you look at those guidelines, they actually recommend against the utilization of probiotics for mm -hmm. the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. Now there are several other over-the-counter therapies, I'm sure specifically, We've got uh, polyethylene glycol or our PEG laxatives, Miralax, I'm sure. Um, and for IBSC, it's actually not supported in use because randomized controlled trials actually failed to show that PEG actually improves overall symptoms or pain in patients with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation predominance. I think another big one too is antispasmatics, right? It remains one of the most frequently used treatments for irritable bowel syndrome. I'd have to say I prescribe it as well, right? <laughs> but uh, assessing Same. overall efficacy on global IBS symptoms is difficult because the class includes multiple agents with different mechanisms of action. So again, there's limited data supporting the use of antispasmodics available in the United States because there's overall old, old data, right? Decades of, you, you know, <laughs> years ago that they performed these studies and it's just poor quality. But again, I still use it, right? So Nastasha, thoughts on that? I 
No, I echo that same thing. You know, I still use it because um, essentially there are some patients who essentially just in terms of the spasms, it'll help with them. It's easy. It's cheap. It's effective at times. But again, in terms of guidelines, is it, you know, it shouldn't be the first kind of first line. Um, but I still, I do use it in clinical, kind of in clinical practice. Yeah. And I, I do think it helps with pain, right? It helps re relax the, the smooth muscle a little bit in the colon, right? So it does help with pain. I think for me, um, just as a, as, a, as a little pearl here, I, I use this sometimes in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea predominant, specifically postprandial diarrhea, right? To kind of mm -hmm. slow things down. So if I'm going to prescribe an antispasmatic, I usually tell them to take it about 30 minutes before a meal. And sometimes that actually helps a little bit with a postprandial diarrhea-like symptom, right? So Correct, right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you do too, right? Um, and the last two things I want to talk about, you know, bile acid sequestrants. We just don't have enough data to support use of that for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea predominance. And last but not least, the fecal transplant, right? <laughs> Again, it goes back to that hot topic of the microbiome, right? And we're thinking, if we alter the, the you know, the microbiome of the colon, is that going to help alleviate, you know, our irritable bowel syndrome patients? Unfortunately, please tell your patients, no poop transplants here, right? We do not have enough data to support the utilization of fecal transplant in order to treat, right, to treat appropriately our IBS patients. So, Nastasha, we have had a wonderful discussion here about irritable bowel syndrome. Now, let's talk a little bit about our challenging cases. You know, I'm sure that you've got a ton of them, but what are some that stand out to you the most that we can share with our listeners today? You know, I think some of the most, you know, again, I probably shared it a little bit earlier, but you know, some of the challenging cases are the ones that have been seen by multiple gastroenterology, gastroenterology providers um, and I just have not been been given the confidence in the diagnosis. So they've had 10 colonoscopies, 10 upper endoscopies, they've been <laughs> scanned a million times that I think really the, the, the biggest pearl or takeaway is if you just sit with these patients and talk through them through their symptoms and if they're, you know, the chronicity of them and reassurance, you have a better outcome. And, and really you'll find that may, some of the times maybe they didn't even try any of these therapies that were prescribed or, or suggested because they just didn't have, you know, that confidence and they thought, you know, something has got to be wrong with me. They were, we are missing something. Um, so I think that is the, the key takeaway point when for any complex, you know, patient, but I think it's the ones that, you know, who, who have good insight into the condition that you'll have the most success with in terms of, you know, that I'll come back to your office in six months and tell you, I don't know why I start, didn't start on the TCA, you know, sooner. Or, you know, the patient that was like, oh my God, I didn't realize, you know, I started the low FODMAP diet. I didn't realize, you know, how much the food I was eating was impacting all of my symptoms. And now I'm feeling completely better. The diarrhea is resolved. My abdominal pain is gone because I didn't believe it was what I was eating. But until I was given the tools to understand the mechanism of how this is interacting with my, with my, my gut, um, I'm seeing so much improvement. So I think, um, I think that's the, the key takeaway for some of these um, complex patients. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, I literally just saw a patient before we started this podcast who a female patient I had seen maybe about six months ago. I gave her the diagnosis of IBSD. Um, you know, I had recommended some dietary modifications with her and also talked about a prescription-based therapy for her to try. So um, the symptoms that she was describing, I thought maybe she would respond well to um, one of the prescription-based therapies. So she comes back to see me about, it was, uh, let's see here, about three weeks ago. And her symptoms are almost exactly what they were when I saw her before. And I'm thinking oh. to myself, my goodness, you know. So, so then I paused for a second and I just said, can we take a step back?
did, did you try the uh, prescription that I had recommended for you? And you know, she looked at me and she was like, I didn't. And I was like, okay. Shocker, <laughs> shocker. But it was it was a minute of, you know, be right. actually asking that question, right? And mm -hmm. I, I was almost, I was surprised. And then I said, and how about, you know, diet modification that we talked about? And she's like, I did it for a week, right? So those things maybe take a step back. So we, we had a long discussion again about irritable bowel syndrome, about her, uh, specifically about her symptoms. And she agreed to then take the prescription-based therapy that I had recommended. So this morning before this podcast, we had a video visit. And can I tell you, I have never seen this girl smile. This girl went from having 10 bowel movements a day to now having two. She said to me, Kim, she's like, I have never felt so much better. She's like, my symptoms are better. She's like, my, my frequency is better. My pain is, she said, my pain is gone, which I couldn't even believe, right? My pain is gone. And just the fact that she was smiling and I could just see, I could feel, almost feel it through like, you know, the computer. Oh that yeah. she felt so much better. But, you know, sometimes it's going back to the basics, right? Sitting down with them, listening to them. And as we talked about before, really talking to the patient about this, but also not giving up, right? Or just kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, the patient comes back in exact same symptoms. I could have very easily said like, okay, let's try something else before actually going back and reevaluating. Okay, what did we do? Did we try this? You, you know, something along those lines. But I think earlier, Nastasha, some of my other really challenging patients are putting them on a TCA, right? Um, I use TCAs mm -hmm. quite frequently, um, but it, I think it's that, you know, we talked about in the beginning, right? Like having this really great provider-patient relationship and really having them understand why you're using this therapy. I mean, I break it down as to why we use TCAs. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not giving you, you know, a medicine because I think you're depressed or you have anxiety. I know that this works on the GI tract you know, explaining mm -hmm. it to them. And I think that when you have that really great relationship, that then they'll move forward with using some of these therapies that we know are so beneficial, right? No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the key things, and I, I love that you keep hitting on this, is asking those questions. Um, because, you know, taking a history is an art, I always say. It gets better over time. And, you know, I was just, it was triggering my mind, a patient that I saw last week too, where there was documentation. She failed Rifaximin. She failed, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. And she was like a long list. And I actually went through them with her, all of them. And she goes, actually, I never tried any of them either. So here we go. We started, then we, so then we just went back to the beginning and it again, saved myself time and trying to like wrap my brain around what else can we try when in all reality, she had not even really tried anything too. So you make a great point of always ask, okay, did you, and then also talk about why didn't you, what was the trepidation or what was the issue? Did you know, did you try it for one day? And like I had, you know, someone else on therapy for prescription therapy for their IBSD. Um, and she's like, I stopped it because it cost too, it cost too much constipation when there was a smaller dose I could have brought her down to, to kind of help alleviate that. So I then stressing that, you know, if, you know, when you start something, reach out to me, if it's not working, if it's having any symptoms, do not hesitate so we can work through it as opposed to it's three or four or five months later. And I'm just hearing that, you know, I stopped taking it because of the, the constipation side effect or X, Y, and Z. So, um, it's just, again, that provider patient communication, um, is so key and asking the right questions is so key. Right. I totally agree. Nastasha. Wow, thank you so much for this great discussion today on the updated guidelines for irritable bowel syndrome. 
And thank you, Kim, and everybody listening. This truly has been a great discussion. And again, being able to do this podcast with you, it's kind of been like our full, our full circle moment of doing a project <laughs> together. Oh, thank you so much. So both Nastasha and I hope that our listeners have gained the tools to confidently diagnose irritable bowel syndrome using a positive diagnostic strategy and help develop effective, individualized, multidisciplinary treatment plans to successfully manage your IBS patients. Thank you, ANP, for allowing us to do this podcast today. Thank you again. Thank you, Kim and Nastasha, for sharing your wealth of knowledge on this extremely important topic. It's been a great segment. Your dedication and passion really came through. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AAMP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AAMP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for MPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AAMP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. Nastasha and Kim have developed a patient tool and a provider tool with AAMP to help nurse practitioners educate their patients with IBS. There are links in the show notes to the tools. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. Thank you for listening.